today on Bob and Yurt Live, was I too harsh yesterday? Was I too judgmental and unempathetic? My answer might surprise you, but probably not. We'll talk about that. I'm also going to talk a tiny bit more about the march for abolition, why it is so crucial to go there before responding to one final abortion argument. All of that and more today on Bob and Yurt Live should be a lot of fun. Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. Welcome to Bob and Yurt Live. I'm your host, Dominic Enyart. On yesterday's broadcast, we talked about the March for Abolition compared to the March for Life, and I want to make a few more points about that, then I'd like to continue with one or two more abortion argument rebuttals. But before I do so, a friend of mine was listening to the show, and my friend isn't a regular listener, as You'll likely be able to tell by her objection. No regular KGov.com fan would make this objection, I don't think. But as my friend was listening to the show, she said, uh, she, she asked me, she said, aren't you being too judgmental? Shouldn't you show some more compassion and empathy? And I know that typically the gut reaction of the brightest audience in the country would be to disregard that, which is often appropriate. I'd say even usually appropriate. How many times do we have to deal with that objection over and over and over before we end up just disregarding it completely? And I don't know the answer. I don't know how many times, but I want to try to not just have it be my gut reaction and to take some time to consider this. So we'll talk about abortion, the abortion issues again here shortly, but first I want to spend some time to talk about judgment. So judgment, what is judgment? Uh, I'm not even going to look up a dictionary definition, but instead I'll just give my own. I believe judgment is determining whether something is good or bad. And that, that doesn't mean that's not just in a moral sense but in every sense. You know, you judge chocolate ice cream and you judge it to taste good or to taste bad. A girl might judge, say, a dress as making her look good or looking bad. When I watch hockey, I say the avalanche here, like here in Denver with our goalie situation, I think, oh, this is good or, oh, this is bad. Currently, I've decided to make the judgment that we could use some improvement. But so judging, deciding whether something is good or bad, we often hear this concept thrown down with a lot of disdain, right? Oh, she's so judgmental and you should never judge. And well, in a moment here, I want to take a look and see what the Bible says, because that's a pretty darn good guide and it won't let you down. But before I do so, I'd like to just work through the issue on a purely logical level and see how far that takes us. So we'll, we'll get to the Bible in a bit, but first, just from a purely logical stance. So the these people who claim that judgment is a bad thing, do you see what they've done there? If judgment is determining whether something is good or bad, and someone has determined judgment to be bad, you could say they have judged the mere concept of judging. 
Ironically, in the process, they've accidentally condemned themselves for doing the very thing they believed to be bad. So if you genuinely believe judging is bad, which would by necessity make you bad, there are two options for you. Option A is to not care, to say, yes, I'm judging and judging is bad, but I'm going to continue judging anyways. This is a sinful option of apathy because if you believe something to be immoral, even if it's an amoral action, if you believe something is immoral and in rebellion to God, yet you do it anyways, that is sinful. So that's option A. Option B is not much better. Option B is to give up on all judgment, to not care whether something is good or bad, to not care to judge it to be good or bad, to not care if flavor tastes good or tastes bad, to not care if a dress makes someone look good or bad, to just be a void of opinion and belief and emotion. In reality, the second option is pretty much impossible. You know, you may have heard the phrase that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and we've talked about that on the show, and it's true to a certain extent. You know, we almost have no choice but to be guided by desires and likes and dislikes, and that's that's what makes us humans and what, what makes our souls interesting, right? We're not, we're not robots that are just meant to exist without thoughts one way or the other. Ironically, if you could achieve a state, this weird state of passive judgelessness, if I could call it that, you would likely forget why you wanted to stop judging and think through the issue again. Or perhaps you might think to yourself, am I more happy like this? Are things better or worse? Are things good or bad? And as you were thinking through those issues, you would be judging and thus leaving your judgeless state Not judging is a lot more difficult than you would realize. There are rare cases, if you've watched any true crime documentaries, there are cases where a psychopath genuinely does not care one way or the other about right and wrong. You know, a lot of people try and pretend to be insane. You know, they try and plead insanity. But pretending that you're insane after committing a crime, that rarely works. Because most people, most people actually don't know what actual insanity looks like. So, you know, a criminal, after they commit a crime, they'll start flailing their limbs around and screaming incoherently. Or there's the famous case, if you know the, the Parkland, Florida school shooting. You know, I coincidentally was in Florida at the time. But that shooter famously was acting in the interview immediately afterward by the detectives. He was acting as if there were demons inside him controlling him. And he was acting that way so he might be able to later plead temporary insanity. But fortunately, the authorities did not fall for it because they knew what actual insanity looks like. And actual insanity... It looks like someone who knows the difference between right and wrong, but could not care less. That same person also couldn't care less about the consequences. An insane person wouldn't even bother to plead temporary insanity because the consequences are irrelevant to him. And genuine insanity, I'd say, is probably as close as humans can come 
to not judging, right? Not caring what is right or wrong, not caring what is good or bad. But even in those rare situations like that with a a criminal who's genuinely uh, a psychopath and is actually temporarily insane, the psychopath is still judging. He judges an action, say murder. He judges murder to be bad. And then immediately he goes on to murder somebody. And, you know, after he makes the judgment, he still doesn't care. So in in reality, he still is judging, even though he doesn't care about his judgment. So that is what insanity looks like. But so in reality, people say we shouldn't judge. Not judging, it's it's not even possible. It's an impossibility. So the two options, option option A you admit that you're bad because you judge and then continue judging anyways. Or option B, you try to not judge and fail and then continue judging anyways. And both options, they aren't really all that appealing. But so when offered A or B, a wise man often chooses C. And that's what I would like to do here. I think if we instead reject the premise that judging is inherently bad, things become a lot more manageable. Rather than throwing out the blanket statement that, oh, judging is wrong, let's instead say that judging can be good or judging can be bad depending on how someone is judging, right? So if I were to say Jesus was a good person, I would be a good judge for saying that. If I were to say that Hitler was a good person, I would be a bad judge, which, of course, intuitively is true. So rather than wasting my time trying to be an inhumane, static being, not judging anything that comes my way, I think it would make a lot more sense to try and spend that effort and become a good judge and determine good things to be good or bad things to be bad. You know, you might ask, well, how does one determine what's good and what's bad? And that's a worthwhile question, but not one I'm going to answer right now because that's taking us a bit too far too fast. Right now, I only want to discuss the very mere concept of judging. And so not even getting into Bible verses, the logical conclusion seems to be that we should judge and we should try to be good judges. Now, as we should with all of our logical conclusions, we should check and see if they match up with Scripture and what Scriptures teach. So to, to do that, I'm, so my conclusion is that we should judge and we should try and be good judges. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compare this with Scripture and see, see how this goes. So reading now from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not... Oh, well, looks like I was wrong. I'll just pack up and go home, I suppose. That's that's pretty proof conclusive. No, judge not. I guess I was wrong. You know, obviously, if you're listening, you'll be thinking it's unlikely that I'd spend five minutes arguing that we should judge and that it's impossible to not judge and then to immediately turn on a dime. And you would be right. You would have just properly judged me. So what am I doing, right? This, this Bible verse says judge not. 
I'm illustrating the point that so many Christians read this passage and they stop immediately. Hey, it says right there in the Bible, judge not. Foolish, foolish Christians say that because what they what they do is they read the first two words of that entire passage and then cross the rest of it out. So reading the entire passage in its full context from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So do you get that now? Don't judge like a hypocrite. Don't judge someone for doing something you're doing. Don't have double standards when you're judging. So this passage, which is so commonly used as a anti-judging proof text, it teaches the exact opposite. It says, don't be bad at judging. Hypocrites are bad at judging. So stop, stop being a hypocrite. Stop being bad at judging. Stop doing the bad thing. And then you'll be good at judging. So the very verse that's used as a don't judge proof text teaches how you should judge. In Luke chapter 7, God gives Simon a hypothetical situation and he asks Simon to judge the situation. And Simon gives his answer. And what does Jesus say? And this is a direct quotation right here from Jesus. You have rightly judged. And those words are in red. So Jesus, he's right here. He says, you have rightly judged. You've judged rightly. Good job. So clearly in the Bible, we are taught by Jesus to judge with righteous judgment. And not just by Jesus, by the way. And there's dozens, dozens of verses in the Bible that talk about judging righteously. I'm just, you know, picking a few out of the top of my head. But not just by Jesus, by the way. Also, you see it all throughout the Bible. The Apostle Paul teaches very clearly that Christians should judge. First Corinthians, he talks a lot about judging. And he says in earlier in the book, he says, he who is spiritual judges all things. That's uh, that's pretty clear, right? In fact, later in the same book, Paul even says, hey, Christians, we are going to judge the entire world. We are going to judge even the angels. We're going to be judging the angels. And you guys, are, you're you're kind of terrible at judging, so you better start practicing your judging right now because you have to be good at judging for when the time comes. And that's the um, that's the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So go read that. And it, it's funny. You tell Christians that we're going to judge the world, and they say, oh, no, 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 that's not true. Only God judges the world. Everyone, everyone knows that. And you show them this verse, and they will literally it's it's bizarre i've had it happen to me a few times though they will stare at the verse and they just they can't even register what the words say it's, it's as explicit as a verse gets but christians they they just don't believe it 
There's a, a funny story about this verse, actually. I, I don't know if you guys in the audience remember the name Greg Perry. Uh, Greg used to come on the show way, way long ago. And if any of you know the name, he showed this same verse, the one I'm talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He showed it to a friend of his, and his friend said, well, you know, no, this can't be true. We won't judge the world. God judges the world. And Greg said, well, it says it right there in the verse that we will judge the world. We will judge the angels. And so Greg's friend, he pulls out his own Bible, which I suppose was superior to Greg's for some reason. And his Bible had a little footnote that says Christians will judge the world. And Greg's friend said, well, what do you know? I guess I guess we will judge the world. And Greg asked the guy, he said, why would you trust the footnote but not the verse itself? And Greg never got an answer. But so point being, logic on its own is enough to show us that we should judge. Then to back that up, the Bible teaches us explicitly that we should judge and we should be good at judging. And how do we get good at judging? Well, you read the Bible and you practice. And, you know, but what a lot of these people obviously mean when they say we shouldn't judge, they haven't, I don't think they've especially really thought through the issue at great length and the concept of is judging good or is it bad. I think they just kind of, they, they see people who judge and they see people who come across as a little mean. So they have this gut reaction to say, oh no, judging is bad. And it's tragic that they do so because I think they actually have somewhat of a valid point, but they do kind of a, an abysmal job articulating it. And I would like to go a step further and uh, uh, try and articulate the point I think that I'm, I'm intuiting that they're trying to make. I want I would like to try and articulate it a little bit better than they do, which I, I think the point they're trying to make is that, and I mentioned my friend who listened to the show yesterday, um, mentioned empathy and should we have some more empathy and definitely as Christians, you know, especially the, uh, brightest audience in the country type Christians, we tend to generally have, it's definitely a, a flaw of mine that I tend to have a lack of empathy. I was actually talking about this on Twitter recently, follow me there at Dominic Enyart. And I was saying, I, I realized that I do have a lack of empathy and it's, it, I think it's good to notice, you know, your flaws and my lack of empathy it is definitely tied into my judgmental mindset that we should be judging people. And so it's good to recognize that when we are judgmental, it is very easy to have a lack of empathy. And I've noticed this in my own life that I judge people and say there's someone who gets fired from work for being lazy, for example, I will look at that person and you, you know, I'll go help that person. I'm not going, going to just completely ignore them, but I'll go and help them. Yet as I'm helping them, I have little to no empathy inside me. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm there putting in the work, but I don't feel 
bad for the person when often I should feel bad for them. I, I typically in my mind, I just think, you know, oh, this person should have done better. This person should have worked harder, should have been there on time. And I struggle to feel that genuine empathy. And I think we should take note of that when we are not feeling empathetic and that we should genuinely try to have that empathy. And it can be difficult because very often, say, in a situation like that where someone is uh, lost their job because they were lazy, very often both things are true, that they should have been better, they should have worked harder, and they should have you know shown up on time. And you should also be empathetic. It's possible that both of those are true, which is why finding a balance can be so difficult for a lot of people. But so it's a good point that we should show empathy in a lot of cases with the situation that I was talking about yesterday with abortion. Abortion is such an egregious sin and such a selfish it is the epitome of selfishness and sin it is the most clear-cut example of it and so i feel that empathy in a situation like that it's good in the sense if you can have empathy in your heart and feel bad for a person who is so lost and broken and in darkness and away from jesus it's good to to have that in your heart, to want them to come to Christ. But it's not the appropriate time to say, hey, I, I really empathize with you and you know, I'm going to show extreme kindness because you murdered your baby. I'm going to forgive you for murdering your baby as if you had the authority to forgive someone for murdering their own baby. Only Christ would have that kind of authority to forgive sins against another person that wasn't you but so it, it is good to have empathy but not not the empathy of acceptance and you know I, it, oh it, oh this doesn't matter it doesn't matter that you did this i'm just i'm gonna live with you anyways and it's not gonna be a strain in our our relationship that is not the appropriate type of empathy for when someone commits such an egregious and heinous crime but with that said it is a good point that a lot of Christians, they don't have empathy. And, you know, we can spend all day talking about the sins of the world and the sins of others. But really, at the end of the day, you can't control other people. You can only control yourself. And so if the sins of others are way worse than yours and you have your own sins, which are seemingly minor... The correct thing to do is, first and foremost, to stop sinning yourself. Your minor sin is more of a priority than their major sin to try and fix. Because you can fix your sin immediately, right then and there, but with other people's sin, you cannot fix their sin. You can encourage them to stop sinning, but you can't fix it. So start with your own minor sin before you focus on the world's greater sin. But so, okay, yesterday I was talking about the March for Abolition, and I would like to, uh, you know, re reinvite you guys out there in the audience to remind you, join Colorado Right to Life this Saturday at Planned Parenthood in Denver, 10 a.m., in front of the very Planned Parenthood abortion clinic that performs abortions 
right here in Denver on Pontiac. The details will be in today's show summary on kgov.com, or you, you can go and listen to yesterday's show, or you can visit the website kgov.com slash March-2022. So the March for Abolition 2022, kgov.com slash M-A-R-C-H-2022. But so with, with the March for Abolition, it is... I, I, the wording I would use is it seems to be a rebranding of the March for Life, which is slightly tone deaf. If you don't know every year the history of it, every year in January there is a you know national March for Life. And it's in January because in 1973, January 22nd, Roe v. Wade was passed. Then the March for Life every year in January, they celebrate life. And there, there's really no other way to put it other than very bluntly, it's extremely tone deaf. On the very day Roe v. Wade was passed, we're out here celebrating and cheering. And if there was ever a day to be somber, it is January 22nd. Yet the March for Life every year goes, they go, they go out and they celebrate. So the March for Abolition is a rebranding, January 22nd, 2022. I spoke there last year. It's a very intense event, and I I think it is crucial that you go and that we apply social pressure to the culture. And now this is not a feel-good event, right? There's a lot of Christian events that are like, oh, come and, you know, we'll worship and, you know, praise and, and we'll feel good about everything and Uh, Those things definitely have some value in their own right, but this is not one of those events. This is not a feel-good event. You don't go there to feel all these giddy emotions, right? This is a march, and it is a time and place for our rubber to meet the road and for us to put our money and our action where our mouths are. So details will be on kgov.com. Join Colorado Right to Life this Saturday, it is so important. Now, I mentioned I wanted to get to one or two more pro-choice argument rebuttals this show. I don't know if I'll have time to do multiple, but there's one that surfaces every few years, and it's supposed to be the bane of conservative existence, and I want to get to that in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you, if you at all can help us stay on air, go to kgov.com sponsor or kgov.com store, and any purchase there will help keep us online, and we would be so, so thankful and keep us on air. But there's this argument that pops up every few years that's the bane of conservatism, right? And as we discussed yesterday, there's never ever been a single good pro-choice argument, not even one time. So it's always a little fun when people say, oh, here's here's a good pro-choice argument that uh, you know gives us something that we can dismantle. But this argument pops up every few years, and it goes as follows. Imagine a situation where you are in a fertility clinic when the fire alarm goes off. And before you escape, you have the option to save a five-year-old child who is pleading for help or a container of 1,000 viable human embryos. Do you A, save the child, or B, save the 1,000 embryos? 
and there he says there is no C. C means you'll all die, and you know that's that's kind of a unfair little thing to put on there. But and who knows why you can't save both of them? Perhaps you have a mocha frappuccino in one hand, and you you just can't you just can't do it. There's that's just how it is. And he says if you choose the little girl, you are saying that the thousand viable human embryos have no value, which this is absurd for many reasons. First and foremost, I've thought about this, and I don't think it's unreasonable to say that I would save the thousand viable human embryos. Also, if it were my daughter, for example, I would save my daughter over a thousand fully grown people. That doesn't mean those fully grown people are not people. Also, I would save that little girl over the average pro-choice Democrat, and that does not mean that I think that pro-choice Democrats are not people. So this bane of conservatism that is supposedly unanswerable was answered in under 40 seconds right before the closing music. Your emotional appeals are not persuasive. Hey, this is Dominic Enyar reminding you to do right and risk the consequences. Join us at the March for Abolition. May God bless you.